Thank you, Brother Eric. Good morning. This morning, we are in Malachi chapter 3. And we'll be covering verses 7 through 12. The title of today's message is just like your the header of chapter 3, verse 7 on your Bibles, titled Robbing God. And I know that sounds pretty uh, intense already, right? We are coming to the fifth out of six disputes that structures the book of Malachi. Throughout Malachi, as we've walked through it over the last few months, we've seen a number of disputes that God has with his people. Issues ranging from God's love to the priest's worship to what they were offering and receiving in turn to marriage in the covenant community and so on and so forth. In each of these disputes, we see the same general pattern emerge where God calls out his people on some specific issue. The people of God respond in turn antagonistically. God then responds in turn. Today we're coming to the fifth dispute in Malachi that centers on the issue of tithes and offerings. Verse 6 is something like a hinge verse that both completes the previous dispute and opens up this dispute. And we covered that last week. We will be reading and studying for Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. God's word says, For I, the Lord, do not change. I'm reading from verse 6. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse. You are a you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to, te to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that, you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless your word this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Open our hearts, our minds, Lord, that we may repent if we need to, Lord, and that we may draw closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It is true that when we think about money... Almost all of us have been entrusted with financial resources. Some of us have been entrusted with more, and some of us have been entrusted with less. But all of us have been entrusted with financial resources. So this message applies to all of us, whether you have a lot or you have a little. In that way, it would be fair for me to speak of my money and for you to speak of your money. It's also true that when someone unlawfully steals, 
those financial resources from us, it's right and just that they be returned to the rightful owner. However, that being said, according to the scriptures, all of our resources, whether our time, talents, or in this case, our treasures, do not ultimately belong to us. The scriptures teach us over and over again that God above is the ultimate owner of all that we have and that we enjoy. Ultimately, it all belongs to him. The psalmist in Psalm 89 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So everything that we have is God's. That's the bottom line and the truth. God is the creator of everything, of all things. All that we have and all that we enjoy. He's founded heaven and earth and everything in it. Therefore, all that we have is ultimately, it ultimately belongs to God. So in the Bible, it teaches us that it is incumbent upon all of us in the Christian life to learn not to how to take and consume and hoard all that we have to suit every desire in our, that our hearts produce. Rather, that we learn how to steward, how to be good stewards of what God's entrusted us. According to God's word, all that we have been entrusted by God with his resources. So are you a good steward? Am I a good steward? Are we good stewards of what God has entrusted to us? This is stewardship 101 according to the Bible. Nonetheless, it's right and just and fitting, especially since we are being trained and taught daily by a consumeristic world that we're in, that we often are reminded about what the Bible has to say on these issues and our possessions and money. It's an important topic that we got to address, and it just happens that we fall on that today, and we will be talking about it. But here in Acts Reformed Church, we don't talk about money every week. We do not. But today, it's the day that is in Scripture, so we got to address it. Today gives us another opportunity to do that as we continue to stroll through Malachi's prophecy. In our text this morning, the prophet Malachi accuses the people of God in his own day of adopting the kind of tight-fisted approach towards possessions contrary to the law of God. It's the kind of approach that reflects the heart that says, and let's analyze our hearts, a heart that says, Everything I have is mine to do with it as I wish. It's a selfish, self-centered attitude. It's the kind of approach that is rooted in stingy hearts that seek fulfillment, not in God and in his promises, but in consuming and acquiring possessions. Look at the world. You got to have this, that, the best, the new iPhone, right? The new iPhone 12. Got to get it. Got to have it. The newest, latest car, the gadgets, the clothes, whatever it is that you got, you're, um, you're attracted to or you want. We got to have it. That's how, what our heart says. And nothing wrong with things, but when you put them above God, they become idols in our lives. And the heart is an idol factory. just keeps coming out, more, loving more idols above God. So Malachi, as we will see in view of the situation, does a few things throughout this text. For one, he reminds them of God's law. We got to be reminded of God's law. Malachi reminds them of 
of that God himself has to say about their possessions. God has a rightful claim to all that they possess and all that they own. There are statutes and there are laws, rules that they are ignoring that govern how they should give tithes and offerings to the Lord. He points out where they are failing to abide. In short, Malachi tells his audience it's actually God's money and he demands it now. Second, Malachi gets to the hearts by showing them the dissatisfaction that they are ultimately seeking in the depths of their souls. One that is focusing on taking and keeping and consuming for themselves. Just as the world would have us do today. It will never produce the fulfillment that they are looking for. You could keep having more and more possessions and things and you will ultimately find yourself empty. You will not be satisfied because our only true satisfaction is in knowing and having that relationship with God, that connection, that love, that obedience towards him that he's calling us to. It's for our own good. Sometimes we think of it as, oh, God doesn't want me to have this or that, but it's for sometimes God wants to detach us from this world and from the things that take his place. Counterintuitively, God says in our passage today that the only way that you will find true blessing is by loosening your grip on the things that you have and seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in me, in God. God says, I'm the source of blessing, not these things that you are called to steward for your enjoyment. In the same way, that's God's message to us. Even though we are no longer bound by this specific tithing, we're not bound by the Old Testament, these tithing practices of Old Testament Israel, God's claim on our, possession, to our, to our, on our possessions is no less than what it was in Malachi's day. It has not changed. God is still owner of all things, of everything. God's exhortation to his people through Malachi that blessing and life will never be found by hoarding possessions also remains true for us today. Just like this community that Malachi addresses, we too are called and commanded to generosity. We're commanded to be generous people with our possessions, with what God has given us to steward. Rooted in hearts that acknowledge God's generosity to us, because has God not been generous to you and to me? He has, right? Hearts that acknowledge his ownership of all things. God is owner of all things. Hearts that trust that God alone, not in our possessions, not in what we possess, whatever we have and enjoy will ultimately satisfy the God-sized craving in our soul. Only God can feel that, not possessions, not things. So today's big idea is this. God requires repentance from stingy and selfish stewards. Maybe that's me, maybe that's you, maybe that's us. Maybe that's something that we need to reflect from God's word this morning. Malachi's central refrain in this passage is a pretty simple one. It's repent. We've heard that word repent. Repent means to turn away 180 degree where we were once doing this and now we're not longer, no longer doing that. And daily repentance is necessary for us. It's not a one-time done thing, but it's every day we're continually repenting because every day we 
come back to where we shouldn't be going. We go stray, right? Malachi, he says that in verse 7, return to me, says the Lord. In this text, God gives his people and us three reasons to repent. One, we repent because God's gospel generosity, it always goes back to the gospel, the good news. God has been good to us. God has given us what's most precious to him, his son Jesus Christ on the cross. He's given us himself to us, sacrificing, loving us, dying, paying that price on the cross for our sins. Amen? Two, we repent because of our rebellious robbery or because we've stolen from God in one way or another. Three, we repent because of God's promise of prosperity. God's promised us to prosper us. So let's start with the first point. We repent because of God's gospel generosity. God's people are called to repent in view of God's gospel generosity. In his first two verses of our passage, verse 6 and 7, let's read verse 6 and 7 from chapter 3. Because I, the Lord, have not changed. Isn't it good that God does not change? He remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen? Your descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. So God does not get rid of us, destroy us, go away with us, dismiss us. He's faithful to his covenant of love towards us. Verse 7, since the days of your fathers... You have turned from, your, from my statues. You have not kept them. Return to me or repent and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Hmm. Last time we were in Malachi, last week I preached, we talked about how God's unchanging nature is one of our core reasons for hope in the view of our sin. We have hope because God doesn't just revoke his promises on a whim. He's not like us where we make promises and then later on we're like, nah, I'm not going to keep those promises. He's not like that. We can trust that the one who speaks to us in his word says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Amen? Because God doesn't just toss that promise aside. Even though we are rebellious and we're... We're, we, don't, we don't obey him and we are, we're doing our own thing a lot of times. He doesn't just get rid of us. He still says, he's, even though we're unfaithful to him, he's faithful to us. Amen for that? What he promises is certain because God doesn't change. He's an unchanging God. In Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant that Malachi prophesies, prophesies about in, in chapter 3, verse 1, we see how it's possible for God's unchanging justice and mercy to remain side by side. So God is just, but he's also merciful. And they're side by side. They're both true realities of him in perfect harmony. That is good news that God is abundantly generous to his people by simply being who he is, the unchangeable God. And as we move on to verse 7, we are reminded that while God doesn't change in his approach to his word, his mercy or his covenant uh, love for his people, he is unchanging. Malachi tells his audience that you haven't changed very much either. Have we changed, you guys? 
Since the time you came to Christ and the time you became a Christian, have you changed or are you the same or have you gotten worse? Something to reflect, something to think about in our own lives. How are we walking with the Lord today? He's saying to his audience, you haven't changed very much either, at least not functionally. To your approach to sin, how is our approach to sin? How do we view sin? Do we take pleasure in it? Do we delight in it? Do we love it? Do we just run to it? And we sometimes do, but if we have the Holy Spirit in us and if we're true, regenerate, born-again Christians who love God, we will ultimately repent, change, be like, what am I doing? What am I in this thing that I should hate, that I should, that God sent his son to die for? What am I doing to, to do the things that God has told me to get away from? How is our approach to sin? How do we view sin? Do we despise? Do we hate the things that God hates? Do we love the things that God loves? That's a big indication of how, how it is that's in your heart. Are you regenerate? Are you a true Christian? Are you loving God? Are you running towards God's will? That's not good news, what we just read right now in verse 7. Malachi says to his audience that you guys are acting just like your ancestors who from Genesis up until now in Malachi 450 B.C. have failed time and again and again to keep God's law. And we all fail. All of us, none of us have kept God's law. We all fail. And they fail too. You are no different. You're acting just like them. Like in the beginning in Genesis, it continues on the rebellion of God's people. A commentator on this passage points out that it's also no surprise God even calls them children of Jacob in verse 6. It's not merely because Jacob is their ancestor, but like Jacob, they have acted and are continuing to act like cheats, like scoundrels. Just go back to Genesis and Malachi's audience is acting like that now, especially in their approach to tithes and offerings. Therefore, they deserve to be under a curse. As Malachi tells them later, in Malachi, that indeed they are, and they are deserved to be judged for their sin because they are acting just like their ancestors in their approach towards their sins. Notice, in full view of their sin, even after God exposes their sins and their and the sins of their fathers, they still have hope because God won't consume them. Sometimes we we, we God hasn't treated us the way we need to be treated. He hasn't disciplined us, and we think we can get away with it, right? But then when God comes and He disciplines, ouch! Does it hurt? And he does it because he loves us, because he cares. Because if you're not disciplined, that means you don't really care. I mean, that means because he doesn't really care. And if the Bible says that you're illegitimate children, that he's not your father. Like if you have your own kids, you're going to discipline them for their own well-being, right? That's the same that God does to, to us. Instead, he's going to call them to repentance. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Repent, he's saying, Repent, and I will return to you. The unchanging God isn't about just to throw in the towel on his covenant people and his promises. Remember the opening dispute that started Malachi, that started in the first five verses of Malachi. What did God say to them? What did God say in the very beginning of Malachi? I have loved you. And he reminds them, I have loved you. I'm going to speak hard to you and truthful to you, but I still love you and I still I'm going to pursue you. Even now, we see his abundantly generosity and his covenant love on display. 
Because God graciously and patiently calls them to repentance. God calling you and God calling me to repentance is a gracious and merciful thing. Because if he just lets us be and go about our own way, we will be lost and we will be hell bound. And we will never come to God on our own will. Because we in our own selves do not come to God. God brings us to him. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. We see throughout verse 6 and 7 God's abundantly generosity and his unchanging commitment to his covenant promises and covenant people realized throughout the history of redemption. If God's people are going to repent of their stingy and selfish stewardship among a countless amount of other things, because that's not the only thing wrong with them. They have a whole bunch of other things that are wrong with them, just like us, right? We don't have one thing wrong with us. We have a lot of things that are wrong with us in our lives from which they need to repent. It needs to be the first thing that they grasp. They, the God they are sinning against by withholding what they right, what rightfully belongs to him is the God that has, the, has only ever been abundantly, gener, has abu been abundantly generous towards them. God has been good to them, continually good to them, continually good to them, and they've been rebellious, sinful, disobedient people. They are going to repent of their stingy and selfish stewards with God's generosity towards them. God's goodness is what leads you to repentance, right? When you realize that God has been good to you, you're like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I living this way? Why am I being disobedient? It's like a wake-up call. He's always been generous towards them. He's always been generous towards you and towards me. His, this call to repentance is an act of generosity. And the promise that he will return to them should, should they repent is an act of generosity. If they are ever going to bring the tithe back into the storehouse with the, the faith that God requires, they need eyes to see that their sin, what their, how, their, how ugly their sin is, how bad it is. And they need eyes to see God's goodness, God's generosity, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy in their lives. Now, here's the problem. God's people have been blind. God's people have been blind. Maybe you're listening today, you're watching, and you're blind. And you haven't seen God's goodness, God's generosity in your life. Just as they have been blind to God's generosity, so too they are, have been blind to their own lack of generosity. They're blind to their own lack of generosity. They're just blind people. Maybe today God can wake you up. God can give you eyes, can give you the sight to see your sin and to see his goodness and his grace and his mercy. That's what we need. God to open our, our hearts. Take that heart of stone and put a heart of flesh. Point two, God's people are called to repent in view of their rebellious robbery. The rebellious robbery. So God says, return to me and repent. Here's how God's people respond to that call, starting in the end of verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? How do we repent? What do, how do, what do we do? How do? I'm confused, they say. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of God. You, Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. Don't mistake the question here. It's not 
anything like a humble and sincere questions as we find later in the scripture, such as, what must I do to be saved? They're not saying it in that attitude of, what must I do to be saved? They're not, that's not the type of question that they're, they're saying. Tell me, I'm convicted, now tell me what to do. They're not saying it in that way. This is an arrogant pushing back at God like the, all the rest of the questions the people of Malachi asked throughout the prophecy that can be understood in the sense of why in the world, they're asking, why in the world would I need to return? Why in the world would I need to repent? It's kind of like when you're witnessing, when you're being an evangelist and you're sharing the gospel with a friend, a family member, a coworker, and they're like... I'm a good person. I don't need, I, I do good things. I don't need to repent. What do I repent of? I'm a good person. That's what they're acting like. Oh, we, we're doing everything right, God. That's, what that's how they're acting like. And it assumes that we are good. It's a wrong view. They think that they are good. And God is ridiculous to think otherwise. They're saying, God, you're, 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 you got it wrong. They're telling God that he's got it wrong when they got it wrong. Of course, the... Is not God's evaluation of their need for repentance. Rather, in verse 8, Malachi takes God's people to the primary issue. Is he seeking to address tithes and offerings? Let me give some background here. In the law of Moses, God's people were commanded to give a certain portion of their income back to God. What we know as the tithe, as a response to how God has been greatly and mercifully abundant towards them. With the acknowledgement that everything is owned by God anyway, and we are merely stewards of all that God's been entrusted to us. All the principles that, is, that we outline at the beginning of the sermon, we think about the tithe, we think about giving 10%. It was probably never that straightforward. In short, there's good reason to believe that the law of Moses actually required three tithes that people would give the, to, from the produce of their land, of what they worked. There was the first type, 10% that they had to give to support the ministry of the Levites who were supported, who, who then supported the ministry of the priests. The Levites were the only of the 12 tribes of Israel who weren't allowed any land when, they, when the people of God settled in the land of promise. So they didn't own any land. They were the only ones. So they were supported by the other tribes. The other 11 tribes supported the Levites. That was the first tithe, 10% of your produce to, uh, produce to the Levites who would support the priests. But then there was an additional 10% tithe that was to support the participation of one of the three big feasts that God's people were called to participate in every year. There was another 10% tithe to support the poor, which was given to about, about every three years. So all in all, the requirement to tithe the gospel was something like 30% almost of your produce every year and some some say it more some say less but again these are specific tithing commands all rested on the principle that everything is god's anyway so if you fail to give god what god requires of you in the, his law well then you were effectively robbing god you were stealing from god that is precisely what malachi accused the people of god of doing in his own day they had been withholding what belongs to God by right. As a result, we learn throughout this passage that they are reaping the very real consequences in the land. For one, Malachi indicates that the land is under curse. We read in verse 9 through 11. Let's read verse 9 through 11. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that the, there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to test. There's God saying, put me to test. He doesn't say that very much. Actually, it's not good to put God to test. Says the Lord of hosts, and if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field that you shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You may have a footnote in your Bible that says something like, this is probably a name for some crop-destroying pest. At least this is what my Bible says about this. That's probably accurate. They were likely dealing with some, some kind of famine in the land as a consequence of their own sin. But that wasn't the only consequence of their own sin. But that there was other consequences that they were reaping. The other consequences are that the social and religious structure that the tithe was intended to support were collapsing. And you're going to be like, what? How does that, how does that work out? Their lack of tithing had self-destructive consequences. By failing to give the tithe, those in poverty were no longer being protected, and the priests who were called to administer sacrifices and provide instruction of God's people weren't being supported either. So it has consequences that affects other people. No wonder the priests and the Levites were tempted to give partial instruction as we learned in, uh, in their sin in chapter 2. They were not doing their job. To be sure, God doesn't let them off the hook in any way, but to fail to give the tithe had the snowballing effect of corruption among the community of God's people. It affected the worship, the priest, and the poor. It affected all those three areas. There wasn't an area of their life that didn't remain unaffected. Ultimately, we find throughout this that the people of God have been disillusioned about God. They don't care about his word. Sometimes, they, we, sometimes we don't care about God's word. We don't read it enough. You say, oh, I care about God's word. How much time do you spend in God's word daily or weekly? Do you open it up? Do you read it? Do you spend time in God's word? They don't care about his word. They don't appreciate that everything they enjoy is ultimately belongs to God. They don't appreciate that. They don't trust that God could really satisfy them, nor have they really grasped his abundant generosity in, their, in the first place. So they don't give their tithes. They hoard. They, they keep it. They steal it from God. They keep and hoard their possessions for themselves. In effect, they rob God and they need to repent. Otherwise, the very real consequence that they are reaping will continue. More importantly, that includes God's displeasure towards them, which should grieve them more than all the other consequences that they are reaping combined. But even in their disregard for God's word, God speaks to their deplor uh, deplorable with the word of grace and hope. He promises blessing if they repent by bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. That leads us to the final point and hope we repent. God's people are called to repent in view of God's promise of prosperity. God promises to prosper us, to continue to be merciful and gracious towards us. Let's read verse 10 and to verse 12. 
bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So that God's house is taken care of. That's what he's saying. God's house may be taken care of. And thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field that shall not bear, shall fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 10, through verse 12, God issues a promise. He says to his people, if you bring the full tithe into my storehouse by faith, I'll reverse the curse that is upon you and your land will once again bear fruit. So God says, if you repent, I will change things for you. God's promise is that if they return to him in faith and exercise hearts of repentance, it will result in their blessing. So God wants us to be obedient. He wants to bless us. When we are obedient, God will bless you. God would bless them according to his word and send rain to water the crops and land and do away with the ravaging pests that are weakening, that are reckoning havoc on their produce or on their fruits, on their, on their food. He would nourish the people once again. He calls them in verse 2 to put them to, to uh, put them, put them to test, to the test. God is saying, test me. To test God in scripture is generally a bad thing to do. You don't test God. This, I'm one of the only places in the scripture that says to test me. That's what Israel did while they were in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they were testing God and God was not pleased. And therefore, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. What God is calling for, for in this context is really nothing more than to trust my word. God is saying, trust my word. Isn't that the, what we should be doing as Christians? Trusting in God's word? Is it inerrant, infallible word? Because it's true? God wants his people to believe that he is a generous God. Do you believe that God is a generous God? Who will bless them if they turn back to him in faith and repentance and bring the full tithe into the storehouse by faith? Do you trust God's promises in his scripture? I mean, right now you're here at church, you're listening to his word. And... Or maybe you're online listening. Do you believe God's word? Do you live by it? Do you trust it? Man shall not live by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And this word right here is inspired by God. Amen? He wants them to acknowledge who they are. We're sinful people. We're rebellious people. Acknowledge who you are, who I am, and who he is. He is holy, just, righteous, merciful, loving, kind. He is good. Their statues as stewards and his statues as the Lord of hosts who owns everything that they enjoy. Don't mistake that call. It wouldn't be enough for them to give the tithes in a heartless or unattached way. You can be a generous giving person and give a lot of money. But how are you giving it? Are you giving it with your heart or are you just giving it because you think God is going to be pleased with you by giving just financial resources? Think about this. It wouldn't be enough for them to give the tithes in a heartless or unattached way. Hmm. As if God is merely calling for a commercial exchange of goods and services. God does not need your money. 
God does not need my money. God's not going to bless them if they simply go through the motions and give their produce with hearts unaffected by the gospel generosity of God. It's got to be done in, because you love God. I'm giving this because I love God, and I'm thankful for everything he's done in my life, and I do it in a, in a way with my heart, not just because. I know people, I've heard of people who don't go to church, but they send their offering, their tithe, and they're like, yeah, God is going to, and God, God, God is happy with, and they're living in sin, and they're doing all, they're living like the devil, yet they think because they're giving their offering to a certain church that their life is going, is, is, that they're right with God. And God is not wanting just your financial resources. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants you to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him in, a, in daily, every single day, and be obedient to his word. Amen? He wants them to give according to his word out of the hearts that they, they have tasted and seen his gracious gospel, generous mercy. Cheerfully, we might add, because it says God loves a cheerful giver, not grudgingly or ah, because I have to, but because I get to, because I want to, because I desire to. That's how our attitude should be. When they do that, when they bring their full tithes into the storehouse and worship of the God of Israel, he would bless them once again so that even the nations would see that God cares for his covenant people. Let's read verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God's people are called to repent because the tithe and the offerings that they are clinging to could never be the source of satisfaction that they are expecting them to be. They are treating their produces effectively as idols. What are we treating in our lives as idols? Our house? Our cars? Our clothes, our phones, our toys, our jobs. What are we in our lives? Let's reflect and be like, what am I hoarding, clinging to, can't let go, spend all my time and energy and effort with? What am I, what am I, what am I holding on to? What is my idol in my life? So God calls them to repentance in view of something that is much better than what they are setting for as at present he says loosen your grip on these things and see that i am the true source of blessings not these things in the same way god calls us his church to look at our possessions whatever we have whatever we enjoy in view of the surpassing greatness of of to know christ jesus our lord friends brothers sisters we have even more reason than the people of God in Malachi's day to be generous with what, he, what has been entrusted to us as stewards because we see the generosity of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? We have the blessing that, that would come through the mes messenger of the covenant announced to the people of God in Malachi's day. We have the riches of Christ at our disposal, so we too repent. We repent of hoarding what God calls us to give because we trust in the better promises of Jesus Christ and we trust God's word when he says to us, and my God will supply every need of you according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? 
So let's consider for a moment a few more ways we are called to apply this text. As, as, as the, as, uh, at the out onset, outset, I want to address one of the questions that is often raised on the issue of tithing today. And maybe that's something you're, ad, you're in, your, in your mind you're thinking about. That is whether or not we are commanded in the New Testament, the New Covenant, if we are called to tithe in the same, that, that, was, uh, the, that it was the saints in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, are we called to tithe still today? And there are a couple of different views out there on this question. Even in the, in, in the, even the there's different um, views out there, Presbyterians, and even in the Reformed tradition, in short, in the New Covenant, we're no longer bound this same exact tithing requirement that the Old Testament Israel was bound under the Mosaic law. So the answer is no. We're not bound by the Old Testament tithe. Those precise requirements have effectively inspired, expired in the New Covenant. However, in the New Covenant, we are commanded to something more. That is a radical generosity. We're commanded to radical generosity as stewards who have experienced the greater generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what leads Paul to command the church in Corinthians to excel in the act of grace and giving in 2 Corinthians 8. Seven. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 8, 7. And let's read it. We're almost done. Those chairs should be comfortable, right? <laughs> 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in the act of grace. Excel in the act of grace. And what is grace giving? Being generous. For some of you, this radical generosity that God calls his saints to in the New Testament is to embody and to display what leading what will, will lead to giving far beyond 10%. 20, 30, 40, I don't know. It's between you and the Lord. It's between what you and you can give. Furthermore, the precise legislation governing in the law of Moses may not be legally binding for us anymore in the new covenant. But those laws should still structure and inform our giving today in a number of ways. God still owns everything we have by right. It all belongs to him and we are commanded to be generous and to give to God in support of his church and his ministries. That command still applies to, the, to us today. That being said, let me end with a few specific applications from this text that calls us to be generous people. Let's wrap it up. Let's land the plane. Are you a thankful person? Are you a thankful person? Examine your heart this morning. Our call towards radical generosity in this text and largely in the New Covenant is rooted in an acknowledgement of how God has been abundantly generous to us. He has been abundantly gracious with his people throughout the history of redemption. Through Christ, we experience that generosity in even greater ways than in the Old Testament that the Old Testament saints did. We have been blessed with life in Christ and the presence of God through the spirit of the risen and ascended Christ. Those gospel realities that drive us to repentance daily are also what drive our generosity too. 
So the more you, you, you really take hold of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for you, you will be more generous and you will be more thankful in your life. So are you someone who takes stock of all the good gifts that the Father has lavished on you and responds to those gifts with a soft and generous heart? A heart that knows and trusts that we have a father who feeds the birds of the air and you're more valuable than he, than, than the birds that he feeds them? Who's valuable more? You or the birds? You are. We are. We're more valuable. And God feeds the birds. He'll take care of you and me, of all of our needs. Or are you only focused on what you don't have? And sometimes we get so caught up on, I don't have this, I don't have that, I need this, I need that. We get so caught up on what we need and what we don't have. That we, uh, that we can constantly bitter, we get bitter towards those who have more than you and angry at God for the lot that he's entrusted you to care. You're like, God, it's not fair. Why does he so-and-so have this and that and I don't have that and I don't have this? And I know we've all been there. If we are going to be the kind of generous people, the kind of generous church that God calls us to be, that's never going to happen with sour and bickering hearts towards one another or towards those in the world. Maybe those in the world are prospering and doing well. We should not be jealous of what they're or what they have. We should be content with what we have and be thankful to God for the things that we do have in our lives. Are you a thankful person? Am I a thankful person? And if we're not, let's repent and let's thank God for the meal that we get to take, for the roof over our heads, for the car that we do have, even though it may be an old, beat-up car. Thank you, God, for that we have a car, right? For whatever job we have, thankful, God, for a job that I do have. Because God commands us to be thankful. What things are preventing you from being generous? What's preventing you from being generous? Let me acknowledge, first of all, that we have a very generous church. I think as a church, we're small, but God is, all of us are generous. We give our time, our resources, our talents, our money. Maybe for you, this passage has still confronted you with a lack of generosity in your own life. Maybe you could give more, though. Maybe God has uh, blessed you so much that you can probably give a little more. Why is that? Why, what are some of the resources that you are not generous with? The resources that have been entrusted to you? For some of us, maybe the answer is fear that we really might not have what we need if we loosen our grip on what we have. Or fear that if we give up more than what we have to God and his purposes, then we won't have the good stuff that in life that we think our stuff gives us. In a way, this wasn't much different than the people of God in Malachi's they face and even right now as we're going through tough times people are not working the COVID has you know taken away a lot of our our extra our jobs and the time that we have out there working especially for many of us we're faced with we're more squeezed we're 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 we have less hours at work so we're like man god provide for me and god will provide for us but let's continue to be generous and thankful people they are dealing with a famine in the land so they're dealing with a famine in the land and god still says be generous be giving he's not saying oh well you're you guys have a famine your excuse keep it all to yourselves he's not saying that god calls them to give him their due and and it says in face of dire economics he called them to be less attached to what they had rather than more 
Sometimes we think, man, it's going hard right now. It's tough. I should be holding on to things more. No, God's calling us to detach, to let go. And let's be obedient. God calls them to step out in faith. God may be calling you to step out in faith, calling me to let's step out of faith, even in their fear with the promise that he will satisfy them in a far better way than any of their stuff could satisfy. What false beliefs are preventing you from being a generous person? What false beliefs in your mind? Pray about other ways that you could continue exercising generosity. Beyond giving of your finances to your church, we are called to give in support of the local church. There are also additional ways to exercise radical generosity. One of those ways is to give your time and talents. Give your time and talents. There are always serving needs in the church. Are you involved? Are you serving the local church? If you're not, you should be, especially if you're a member of the church. We need qualified men to be nominated as elders and deacons who can take the time to go through their officer training and then the Lord willingly exercise their talents by serving. serving. Or maybe God's calling you to take care of the nursery, the kids, help there, or in, in worship, in the music, or just cleaning, picking up trash, or moving the chairs, or whatever the case may be. Let God use you, amen, for his glory and for your good. Serve. There are ample ways in church that you could practice generosity through your time and talents by serving. But you could also serve um, in other ways by radical, ordinary hospitality. And right now it's difficult because of COVID, but when COVID goes away, open up your homes, invite people to your homes, have Bible studies, have just get-togethers, reaching out to your neighbors or welcoming new people. Be hospitable, be loving, be kind, reach out. So pray and think about other ways in addition to giving financially to the church. Where could you practice generosity? Pray, friends, that the grace of the Holy Spirit, we all would grow in being a generous and thankful people. Pray that the Lord would show you in your heart how the idols that you are clinging to and the lies that you may be believing are preventing you from being a generous person. God calls you to be. Pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would become sweeter to your minds and our hearts each day. For Paul, for as Paul says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And it's not talking just financially, it's talking spiritually. Would we be a generous people and a generous church because of Christ Jesus that we have been made blessed? Lord, let's pray to the Lord this morning that he would make us a generous people. We thank you, Lord, for this text. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the reminder that all that we have and enjoy ultimately belongs to you. You are the one who at the same time didn't hoard possessions but gave them to us to steward and enjoy. We pray, Lord, that we would learn in our own lives to be faithful stewards to all that you have entrusted to us, that we would learn to be faithful stewards, not of our sense, not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of joy and cheerfulness based on the work of Jesus Christ that we enjoy. For you have been generous, God, to each one of us. You have been a generous God to this church. And we pray that out of the generosity that we taste and see in the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
we would be a generous people. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.